The world is changing quickly and everyday corporate landscape is changing with it. Every company has to prove compliance with different governmental agencies from environmental reports down to payroll. That's where Lisa Edwards, the president and COO at Diligent comes in, bringing her focus on using technology to improve the process for all. Every company has government rules and regulations they must follow and government rules to adhere to. Audits can be tedious and can take valuable time away from innovation and growth. Edwards brings incredible passion and expertise in using technology to improve the process. It takes governance, risk, compliance, audit, SOX, enterprise risk management, and it puts it together in a logical way so that across enterprise, you can share data, you can see those things. It's the dream of the CFO or the head of audit, or in some cases, the board, to be able to have line of sight to all of these things. Diligent Corporation is making accountability easier, which helps everyone. Companies can move faster without as much clerical gridlock while also improving the way they do business from diversifying their boardrooms to improving the carbon footprint. In this episode of IT Visionaries, Lisa explains how she turned something as tedious as corporate governance into a streamlined tool that improves businesses and enacts social change. Enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries, and today we have a special guest, the president and COO of Diligent Corporation, Lisa Edwards. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Super exciting to be here. All right. Listen, when we were doing our diligence on you, we had not heard of your company, and then we looked it up, and we saw there's over 1,500 people that work there. It's international. So for our audience who doesn't know what Diligent Corporation is, tell us what it is that your team does. Yeah, we are, you know, the best hidden secret, I guess. Um, we are the world's largest GRC company in the SaaS uh, structure. Um, GRC stands for Governance, Risk, and Compliance. So we have a series of products that essentially help companies be better. So how do they govern their business, including their board uh, software portals and how their boards of directors interact with each other in a secure, easy way? their entity and subsidiary management, their um, audit, SOX, compliance, third-party risk, cyber risk, enterprise risk management, all of those things that sort of help a company manage their, their flank and be better. We, uh, we have 25,000 customers in 130 countries around the world. You know, as you said, we have about 1,800 employees and, uh, and growing. So uh, if anyone's interested in a job, hit us up because we uh, we're trying to bring on as many people as we can. All right. There's no question that big giant companies get held or held responsible for a lot of things. Sometimes it can feel like things can only go wrong. <laughs> Give us an idea of what it takes to build, you know, a software to manage this. Because when someone who's not familiar, so a lot of our listeners, of course, won't be too familiar with your industry. But when you sit back and think about all the things that a company has to be responsible for, and then of course you have to layer it in software, you know, I'd love for you to explain to our audience who's not as familiar with the industry. Like talked about like how this even begins to happen because we can kind of understand through bad news alone, like one of the bad things that can happen. Of course, your job is to make sure those things don't happen. So give us an idea, like how does one begin to develop a solution for this problem? Because the problem is, it's just so broad. Yeah, no, for sure. You know, it's funny. Um, a lot of people are touched by these functions. So I will give you an example. You know, I used to run finance operations at Salesforce and you'd think, okay, 
what does that have to do with you know GRC software? Well, we had an enormous SOX practice. So Sarbanes-Oxley, you know, is the set of things that you have to uh, comply with and document and pull samples on and all that kind of stuff. And I managed it on the back of a spreadsheet, you know, and it was, it was terrible. Um, And, uh, you know, many, many of your, of your listeners, whether they're, you know, CIOs, CTOs in the technology business in general, you know, we used to call them ITGRCs. So IT general, I don't even remember what it stands for, but it basically is an automated control. So you can prove that you did something because you've gone in and you've done the hard work to write a script or, um, you know, RPA or it's automated. So it, you know, you know, it's right. All you have to do is test the code, not the hundred, 200, 5,000 samples that your auditors might ask you for. So a lot of people are touched by this. It's bringing technology to, I think the last bastion of, homegrown homemade stuff and it's always the it's always the back office that gets the you know the innovation last this is truly the digital transformation of the back office so when i think about the you know the evolution of enterprise software you know you start with ERP coming together in the 80s and 90s uh, and into the, you know sort of late part of the 90s where you know you had point technologies that kind of made sense to merge together. So, you know, you have the oracles and the SAPs building out these, these things that would say, well, it's not just your financials. You also have to have your inventory management and your logistics management and your T&E and your purchasing. And all those things need to be melded together. And then the, the sum of the parts will be stronger uh, than any of the single parts. And then you have the same thing with my former employer with Salesforce going around and saying like, actually, if you have sales, it makes sense to combine sales, service, marketing, commerce. And that is a stronger set of things because it is together and those pieces can pass through the same way. We're doing exactly the same thing in GRC. GRC is truly the third leg of the enterprise software stool. It takes together governance, risk, compliance, audit, SOX, enterprise risk management, and it puts it together in a a logical way so that that across enterprise, you can share data, you can see those things. It's It's the dream of the CFO or the head of audit or in some cases, the board to be able to have line of sight to all of these things. And give us an idea of how many things, or like, and I don't even know if it's possible to say like things, like when we think of products that we know, so you mentioned earlier Salesforce, like it's easy to say like, hey, I manage, I'm looking over, you know, 10,000 leads, uh, you know, 500 accounts and 20,000 prospects to kind of give a framework. When it comes to governance compliance, there's so many people involved. So like the, your user seats has to be massive, but give us an idea of like an, an installation looks like, like what, what is being managed in this software? Because this world that you play in is so out of the realm of, I think most people's like what they think about. We met with Avalara once and they were talking about, you know, how they got started in tax exempt certifications. I mean, it made total sense that you had to be from the accounting world to even know that that's a problem. Like why would anyone who's just sitting home, home be like, oh yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, you know, yes, um, sometimes we have implementations that have hundreds of users. Sometimes we have, you know, a board of directors uh, and the general counsel and the corporate secretary, you know, are the only ones using it and they're using a specific product. Um, I think where we have the the most impact are those sort of cross-platform uses where there are lots of people providing input going in and then we can actually have external auditors come in and, uh, and look at a version two, just using kind of user control things where they come in and they see and they can certify on the results and uh, do a, what auditors call assurance by looking at those, those pieces of data. So 
it is pretty broadly used. How do you approach some of the challenges that are very, you know, interesting? I don't know if they're unique to yours, but like, I know one off the top of my head, which is like, if, and if you're in government's compliance policy assurance is you're an international, you work with international companies. Well, different countries have different rules. Like GDPR is the biggest one. I think most of our audience understands GDPR is a very different rule that's in Europe that doesn't exist here in the United States. We're not the same. It's not the same penalty level yet. How does your team go about defining how to solve this problem? Because data in one collected in one country has got to be protected one way. Data collected in another country has got to be protected another way. It's, it seems pretty challenging. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think we've all lived with the pain and suffering of data residency and you know, where you need to have a data center and what items you can take in and out of country and where you, if you're on public cloud, you know, where that, where, where that, you know, instance needs to live. And a lot of the, a lot of that stuff is really kind of architecture on the back end. But then there is the other one that you mentioned, which is we're a global company. And so we have companies that use us around the world and SOX is not a required, that's a U.S. requirement. That's not a, a global requirement. There are flavors of many of these things. So we have done the hard work to look at the major markets and say, you know, if it's France or Germany or Nordics or Italy or Spain or South Africa or Australia or, you know, Brazil, they, they have their own uh, special quirks on that, that, uh, that we accommodate and we continue to build into the product as, you know, the regulatory environment changes and as, uh, you know, our footprint gets broader and broader. Um, and then there are a lot, there's plenty that is universal too. So we can build off a, off a common platform and, and then just have flavors of, uh, of what's needed by country or sometimes even by industry. What's relevant to some industries is, is you know, not as relevant to other industries. And I'd say, you know, like one example of that is, is what we've done with ESG. So uh, environmental social governance has become a big thing. We've almost been, you know, calling it ESGRC, but that starts to get to be acronym, uh, <laughs> acronym hell. Uh, but we, um, you know, we, we saw this coming. You know, we feel like ESG is quickly becoming very, very relevant to GRC. And what I mean by that is, when you think about equality and, and your social impact and your diversity perspective and your carbon footprint, all of those things, that's how are you governing your company? What are the existential risks that you're looking at? That's the risks part. And then compliance. So there's broad belief that the SEC is going to mandate some form of climate disclosures, probably TCFD, uh, probably as early as the end of this year. Uh, and when that happens, companies will be expected to start filing TCFD and it will become a, a new standard and it probably won't stop there. There was just last week, uh, some regulations passed in the UK around uh, climate disclosures as well. All of a sudden, that is not a nice to have. That's not a, you know, let's make sure we're trying to do the right thing and keeping our shareholders happy and keeping our employees happy by having a point of view on, on net zero. That is the regulatory, the SEC is asking me to file and certify that, I, that, that what I'm filing is correct. And, uh, and it's a whole different ballgame then. Then it's, um, you know, in the same way that you treat your financial statements, you need to treat your environmental data. And so it's, it's right in our wheelhouse. But we were able to spin that up on the existing platform in only a couple of months. We've supplemented it with some pretty deep um, experience and technology on things like specifically greenhouse gas and carbon and other emissions. But it's, it was a pretty quick spin up because we have the base platform ready to go. 
One of the things that we do have some experience in this field, we had another guest on our show that was part of uh, more DOD compliance, specifically DOD compliance. And they showed us their software and we checked it out and it was pretty crazy, like just to do some of the DOD compliance. I mean, like the requirements alone for that one thing, just to work for a contractor in DOD, the request was more than 60 pages. So then your answer I don't even know how big your answer needs to be, but like the request for information was close to 60 pages and their software helped identify, like it almost like helped them navigate, like customers navigate how to put this all together. Is that like a kind of a piece of what you guys do is like a little bit of education? Because I feel like most people probably don't know exactly how to answer a lot of these requirements. I'm familiar with the pain um, <laughs> because uh, we are one of the very few software companies in the world that is IL-5 certified. So we have gone through uh, the brain damage of, of getting all of that done. And it is, it's hard work. Uh, it's a multi-year path. You know, it's everything from, as you say, sort of what is your infrastructure and the security of that infrastructure to, you know, what personnel can you put on certain accounts and uh, where do those you know, personnel need to be and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, I think, uh, yes, there's always, um, but, but in answer to the actual question, there's always uh, a little bit of education. You know, I think one of the things where we, where we always win is where, you know, the customer knows, um, okay, this is the point technology I'm interested in today, but the adjacencies to this uh, we're probably going to need those at some point. And when we do, is there one supplier, one partner who can uh, help us with all of those, or are we stuck in this point technology world? And so, and the nice thing is, you know, we've got all of the box checking on, we are, you know, at the top of the, of the magic quadrant and the forester wave and all that kind of stuff. So it's not a, it's a safe choice. You know, so it is both best of breed and uh, tech, tech, you know, the platform play where they can go into adjacencies, the contract's already done, you know, they've already got people familiar with it. And, uh, and all it is is spinning up the next module and the next thing. So there's some education, certainly uh, when we're talking to new customers. And then we try to, you know, bring a lot of best practices, whether that's, you know, just webinars and uh, talking to our base and bringing in experts and, and really sort of cross-pollinating um, even amongst our, you know, our user base. So we've been doing some things and thinking through what is what are those communities look like and how do we help them uh, share amongst themselves? Because many cases, like, you know, this, the, the functions aren't necessarily in competition, sometimes even when the companies are, you know, we all have a common need to have uh, physical, you know, security on our data centers and, all of us doing that well brings more trust to the entire industry. And when that happens, goodness ensues. So there's things that we can agree on, even when, you know, even in places where we might, you know, on a day-to-day hand-to-hand -hand combat might be competitive. How did you get interested in this subject? Because most people don't find compliance requirements fun. How did you get in this industry? You know, I, I said we were the best kept secret. Um, you know, when I started thinking about uh, life after Salesforce and thinking I probably have one or two more big jobs left in me, and what are those going to be? I, you know, this will get a little touchy feely, but I, I, I really sort of felt like I wanted more impact, and I wanted to that I, I wanted to leave a bigger legacy than you know she sold a lot of software on the internet, and so. 
I think I was driven or attracted to both. Um, look, I'm like everybody else. I like to win. This company is set up awesomely. It's, it's got a broad customer base. It's deeply entrenched in, you know, not just the uh, Fortune 1000, but the DAX, the, the every, everywhere that you can think of where you need to be, this company is. The opportunity is huge. So there was certainly that. But it was also, um, you know, after the events of George Floyd, uh, now two summers ago, they spun up in a very short period of time, something around bringing equity and diversity to boards. And one of the many products that we have is a board portal. Uh, Over 700,000 of the most powerful people in the world use this. They get onto our software, they manage their board meetings. And we said, wow, what if like we could, there's, and there's lots of diversity issue initiatives going on on boards. Now there's women on boards, there's Athena network, there's Latino corporate directors. There's a lot of good organizations doing good work, but we said, we're in a unique place. We have the eyeballs they're getting on our, on our platform. And they're doing that at least quarterly, often much more. And so what if we allowed them to nominate board ready individuals who ideally were, you know, women and people of color ready for their, their role. Um, And it was sort of the, the stamp of approval of someone who knows how to be a sitting board member in a publicly traded company and can say, this person's ready. Um, So we did that. And we spun up this, um, this rising director network where, um, you know, we now have a large group of directors that uh, we've got major search firms involved, we've got private equity firms involved, we've got, you know, corporates involved and our user base involved when they need to find a new board member, they can look on our portal and look for, let's, let's get some other people on the slate. Let's try to diversify uh, your board. And by the way, we also help with the education around that. So you're not just doing it because it's the right thing to do, which by the way, it is, but do it because it's good for your business. Um, There's a lot of data that shows that boards that are uh, more diverse and leadership teams that are more diverse are more likely to have uh, outsized returns, uh, are likely to be more profitable and grow faster. And so, okay, that feels like a good thing. feels like a win-win. You know, that's kind of what, um, you know, for me was, was really attractive about a company that was not just saying the right thing and trying to do the right thing, but really in a, posi- in a unique position to be able to use the influence that it has to, to help companies um, get better. And then when you look at you know, things like, um, there's such movement around this right now, there's, there's debt being tied to diversity inclusion stuff. Um, you look at the, there was an announcement by Carlisle around a $4 billion fund around, okay, we're going to, um, you know, we're going to provide um, funding based on whether or not the, the leadership team is diverse. And when they did this, actually they did it with the board and they did this in 2016, they started with, you need to have one female on your board. Um, now over 90% of their boards comply with that. But the interesting thing and why they pushed it to the next level and said, okay, now it's 30% is not because like, you know, out of the goodness of their hearts, it might be actually, it's definitely possible in that case that they said, this is the right thing to do. But what they found was the returns of that portfolio that had a larger percentage of women and minorities in positions of power were actually outperforming the other ones. And so uh, it is both the right thing to do. It's, you, it's doing well and doing good. I couldn't agree with you more. I love the spirit behind those policies that you talked about and like the just plain diversity of thought, right? If everyone's an echo chamber, then of course, there's never, you're never going to create any type of innovation. 
some of the things that you get to see are really unique. You talked about the diversity movement and getting more people, underrepresented people, whether it's gender, race, into positions of power that are qualified. Uh, you talked about some of the environmental initiatives, how companies are basically transforming to answer, I guess, the needs of you know society at large and for the future. What are some other areas where you see some really positive impacts of you know some of the things you're doing, some of the things that governments are asking of their or the public is asking of corporations. There's always been, I think, like it's an us versus them, like the people versus the corporation. You'll see like people try to say companies are bad and news or whatever. But the reality is we we all coexist, whatever. We we all and completely dependent on each other for that matter. Tell us about some of the things you're starting to see that you could potentially see changing the way we live maybe in the next five, 10 years. There's a lot of change afoot and it's actually a really exciting change. You know, I think when the World Economic Forum first came out with stakeholder capitalism probably five years ago now. Uh, everyone's sort of like, okay, sure. And now it's really pretty broadly expected that there are there are a variety of stakeholders. It is your employee base, it's your it's your community, it's uh, your customers, it's your and it's your your shareholders. And it's important to um, you know address all of those and. You know, I think, again, five years ago, you would not have CEOs taking a position on public items uh, that weren't directly impacting their business. And of course, now many CEOs are expected to weigh in on uh, on a variety of things. There's also a ton of momentum. Um, you know, there was just the COP conference in Europe last week, and um, there's a ton of momentum around climate and it's not uh, an accident that many companies have pledged uh, net zero and are moving forward. As I said, you know, there's broad understanding that the SEC is probably going to mandate something. Uh, when Chairman Gensler came in earlier this year as the head of the SEC, he, uh, like like all other SEC heads, publishes a uh, you know a regulatory agenda. I guess it was number one on the regulatory agenda. Number one on the regulatory agenda was the financial, the impact of the financial markets of of climate change, and human capital management. So um, you know it says that uh, at least you know at least for for public markets in the United States, you better be paying attention to your diversity and inclusion. You better be paying attention to your climate positioning and uh, whether or not you pledge net zero, whether or not you have policies around this. And you know there's not a bad place to get started. It's still early, and I'm sure that when those regulations come out, there will be a time frame for companies to sort of get compliant and get in line. But it's very clear that it's coming. And there's just a lot of momentum around it for all the right reasons. I mean, I think it is, um, you know, we talk about going to Mars and that's super cool, but uh, I would like to not have to go to Mars. Um, I would like to have the option to stay here uh, as well. And it feels like ultimately that's probably cheaper and easier. So, you know, it's, uh, it's optionality. <laughs> I am an environmentalist at heart. I like to think so, at least. When I found out that recycling act doesn't actually happen, I was devastated. I, I was know. felt like I felt like I'd been lied to for like the last thirty years. I was like, man, I've been recycling. Oh, and I can't undo it either. I just get so anxious when I can't throw away my aluminum can in the in the recycling bin. <laughs> yeah, even though I, I'm I, I'm with you, even though I know if I throw this plastic in the plastic bin, it probably won't get recycled. I'll still do it because I'd like to think there's a chance. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm with you 100 on that. What would you say, you know, this is a little change of subject, but you know, you're obviously in a really interesting position. The company does, while it might, like you just described, while it might not be known to most people, it is very powerful and is actually leading 
a leading source of change for company and how it, organizations, corporations behave, which of course impacts all of us. In your Twitter bio, you claim that you are an operations guru. What, what are some of your philosophies or what are some of the practices you've seen work extremely well building this organization up to be the leader in the GRC industry? Like, What are some of the things that you think that you guys are doing really well? And where are some opportunities you think that you guys can still you know, move forward in? Yeah, you know, um, yeah, there's not that many people who actually love operations. And uh, and I am one of the the geeks that, that get super into it. But I would say the magic often of scale is is really thinking through, um, you know, what do we need to put in place to be better, faster, stronger? It's uh, it's always tricky, right? So you're in a hyper growth environment, um, and I and I lived this life at Salesforce too. You know, nobody likes process. So what is the right level of process that will get you, you know, repeatable actions? The same person that says I, I hate process will say, why can't you capture all these? answers from RFPs and create a library and just crank it out when I, when I push a button, like, okay, yeah, we can do that, but it starts with like capturing. Um, so I think if you show people the value of, of doing the sort of infrastructural foundational work, then it pays off in spades. And so it, uh, you know, I probably need to change my Twitter bio because I also really care about the top line. I really care about growth and I would never let process get in the way of growth. But I recognize that unless you have some process, at some point you will break things and you will not be able to grow. And the reason that's so relevant to sort of this risk and compliance world is that's who lives it in spades. When uh, when you do not have the right controls in place, when you don't have the right policies and procedures and all that kind of stuff, and you're not capturing that data and testing it and looking at it and saying, do we have fraud? Like, uh, why'd this happen? You know, that's when you can get in trouble. And that that is an existential risk. That is not a, um, you know, oopsie daisy. Um, so, Guarding against those existential risks while allowing the company to run as fast as it possibly can is sort of the way that I like to think about it. You know, some of the things that that we think about as a product, it's why it, it, why it's why it makes it me happy because honestly, like risk and compliance and audit, except if you're a risk compliance officer. <laughs> It's a pain sometimes as a as a person in you know as a lay person in the company um, saying you know having the auditors come and say have you filed your sock stuff yet um, <laughs> here's here's sixty contracts that I need you to pull to prove that that uh, you know they 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 follow the policy um, well what if we automate all that like what if it's just it's it, it's scripts and it's um, it's digging down into the right systems and we can automate that for your sock sizes, we can automate that to pull out of your people soft or work day to say, let's look at your, your diversity is, are your hires um, getting more equal or less equal? Are your attrits getting more equal or less equal? And how is that netting out uh, as you look at diversity of, uh, of your company? How does that look overall at your company versus how does that look uh, for your leadership team or your managers and above? And then how is that changing over time? And why is that important? You know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, if you can automate it and you can put sunlight on it, you know, I think most people objectively feel like, okay, it's probably a good thing to, you know, be more equitable, be more sustainable, but if they can't see it, they can't manage it. And so what we try to do is make it so it's easy to see and easy to manage. 
I'm with you 100%. I do have to ask you a question. Now, this is just more a personal question. I'm just regarding your management style. I'm curious, do you like things done based upon like, hey, everyone needs to do things this way? And if, or do you like making exceptions to the process for, for like each group says, I need an exception because this is, you're smiling because I have a feeling you're going to say both. All right. So, I mean, there are technology people on this podcast, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So they know that the business is always going to ask for like, I am a snowflake and I got to have these 17 custom things. And I know that like this company has spent, you know, 10 years building this thing to, to be, uh, you know, best practices. But like what I really need is this other thing. And sometimes uh, those things are corrected. You have to build around it and sometimes they're not. So I would say, you know, ideally there's a, a right way to do things. And we've built out, I feel like, enough in product around, you know, different lanes uh, for different industries and sort of templated, configurable approaches that allow people to take it and make it what they need it to be without going so far off the range that, uh, you know, it doesn't make sense anymore. It's not easy to upgrade. It's not easy to use, all that kind of stuff. So it's that sort of fine line. I remember when I was at at Visa a thousand years ago, um, the CFO had this thing like we were putting in, I can't remember what it was, like a new ERP module or something like that. And it was, okay, every customization has to come to me personally for sign-off. And, and as, the, as the person trying to get it in place, it was incredibly useful, actually, to have that backstop there because nobody wanted to go talk to him. Nobody wanted to go try to explain like, okay, here's my special snowflake and why I have to have to have it, you know? I'm with you. You and I are aligned on that. Now, granted, I've never built a company to the size of yours, but and the companies I've been a part of, we got into a couple hundred people. I always say, I don't want to manage the exceptions. Right. Like we, we're sure. going to try to make the exceptions look more like everybody else. And uh, that was a way that I thought got us scaling faster. Lisa, it was awesome having you on the show and thank you for sharing so much about Diligent. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Lisa, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work so our audience can get to know you a little better. You ready? I am ready. Right out the gate. It also says on Twitter, you are a mom and we checked you out on LinkedIn. You're a member of YMCA and Playworks. These are all really cool things. Tell us about Playwork specifically and why I'm so, like, what, what is it about those organizations that gets you so, I guess, motivated to be, to be part of it? Yeah. You know, I was on the board of both Playworks and what the Presidio YMCA for a long time. I really believe in the mission. Um, both of them really are around kids. Um, so Playworks uh, is a super cool nonprofit based in the East Bay, California here. The, their motto is we believe in the power of play to bring out the best in every kid. So they go into particularly underprivileged schools and they, uh, they help structure recess, create opportunities for leadership, create a safe environment for kids. And the Presidio YMCA is very similar. One of the most beautiful places in the entire world, uh, the Presidio in San Francisco and the sister property across the Golden Gate Bridge. And same thing, they're bringing opportunities to, you know, sometimes they bring in buses to kids that have literally lived in San Francisco their entire life and have never seen the beach. I mean, just shocking uh, and just really doing good work. So um, I, I continue to be super supportive of both those organizations. They're both fantastic organizations. Listen, I'm with you. I have a parent of three. And I always think to myself, like when people talk about like cutting things in school and they want to cut recess, I'm like, no, kids need to play. It is more important for them to play than it is for them to color or what. I mean, not that coloring is wrong, but they just need to play. Yeah. (laughs) 
All right. We looked you up, you know, we mentioned before we checked you out on LinkedIn and we saw that you've educated two of the premier universities in the world are Harvard and Stanford. Which one do you like more? Ooh, ooh. Can I say that on a podcast? Yeah, we, you, you would lean towards somebody. I know that. <laughs> you know, I would say for pure joy, uh, Stanford probably wins, but it was also that epic of my life, right? I was an undergrad at Stanford and in business school at Harvard. I loved them both and made lifelong friends in both. But, you know, probably the the happiest period of just pure unadulterated joy in my life was uh, those, those four years at Stanford. That's awesome. What do you do today for fun when you're not at work and you get a chance to yourself? What do you choose to do? You know, I do a lot of hiking. I really love uh, being outdoors. And, you know, like all of us, I've locked inside on 10 or 12 hours of Zoom a day. So (laughs) when I get the opportunity, I take my dog. I have uh, two dogs. I have a a rescue mutt named Ellie and a a princess purebred lab named Kiki. And uh, the three of us go on walkabout, you know, into the trails. Oh, I love it. And you had mentioned before you care about the environment. You're a hiking person. So I got to ask, what's one of the most beautiful natural landscapes you've ever gotten a chance to witness? Oh, so many. Um, I just, I really love Northern California, to be honest with you. There's a great hike that starts at uh, over kind of on the edge of Mount Tam and dips down into Stinson Beach through through the Dipsy Trail, they call it. It's a, there's a major race that's from there. And then it goes up through a completely different landscape. Um, like you really see the microclimates because you're going from these beautiful hills and rolling plains kind of thing. And then you, on the way up, you go up this thing called Steep Ravine and there's ferns and redwoods and it's almost raining and there's water everywhere. It's the craziest thing. So that's probably my favorite hike in the world. Now, that sounds pretty cool. Do you have to be, uh, you have to be pretty in shape? It sounds like to do that one. That particular one is about three and a half hours round trip. So, I, you know, you might want to train a little bit for it. You could probably make it, but it, it, you might not have as much fun. Hey, listen, the only time I get scared is when I have to ascend something. That's like a personal fear of mine. If I just send like some steep rocks. I, I well, that might not be that. the trail for you then, because there is actually a portion that has a ladder. Uh, so it's hard to bring your dogs on it because you have to figure out how to like, you know, my 80 pound munchkin trying to get her pushed up the top of the ladder is, is not amongst the things that I would recommend. I appreciate that tip. I think I can deal with the ladder. I always joke with our guests on the show. Like there's two things that I'm like really afraid of. And they're both involved rocks. So I don't ever want to really climb rocks. Like I don't want to do it. And then caves. I don't go into caves. You know? <laughs> yeah, I don't go into caves either. <laughs> There's stuff in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Lisa, it was awesome having you on the show. Thanks for sharing a little bit about your life outside of work. And of course, sharing what you're up to at Diligent. Like I said, you, like you mentioned, it, it is a hidden secret. If you're not at teams, people, audience, if you've not heard of this company and you're looking for a fast growth, Fast-paced company. Lisa's already said it. She's looking for people, 1,800 plus employees, leader in the magic quadrant, GRC. What's it stand for again, Lisa? Governance, risk, and compliance. Sexiest software out there. Listen, the way you talk about it seems a lot more exciting than than the way I remembered it. Because you know what, though? I remember it as that guy because I was, I think I was like you. I was managing things in spreadsheets and it was just a link legend, all these different documents and Dropbox and stuff. That's what I was managing. I hear you. We're going to make it better for you. Thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thank you. Super fun. 